Welcome to the Annie Gamers Podcast. This is episode number 105. I'm your host, Evan Minto, taking a brief break from this weekend's Ludum Dare Game Jam to talk to these two nerds over here. Yeah, shout out to Ludum Dare. I'm uh, a little behind on it. <laughs> so I, I gotta get back to that as soon as we're done. With me, as always, is David Estrella. What's up? At sign QX20XX from Twitter.com. And uh, we've got a, uh, a guest this episode, a returning guest. It's at sign Tom Asnable from uh, the Cockpit Podcast. Welcome back. Gundam and Mecha expert over here. Hey, everyone. It's been like, what, two years since I was last on here? Jeez, has what? it been two? Well, okay, hold up. It's been two years since you were last on like a regular episode, but you were just on like the Otakon. You're right. Episode. You're right. Yeah, but that was like a live, like recorded in a hotel room yeah. kind of thing. A little different. So uh, we brought Tom on because there's been a couple bits of like kind of news that we think would be relevant uh, for Tom to talk about. Kind of some mecha related news. But most importantly, we've been watching Gridman and there's a very interesting, extremely mecha related controversy with Gridman. And we know that Tom and pats over at the uh the cockpit podcast are uh experts on all that stuff more so than i am i know a little bit about that i'll try to live up to those expectations <laughs> very lofty isn't it <laughs> yeah i really i really set you up there i'm like tom knows everything about robots everything. there's absolutely nothing that tom doesn't know I, about robots. i know groiser x like the back of my hand I don't even. I'm not even I sure think I might have heard of that before, but I don't. Just not even up. sure what that is. What's Groiser X? I think, uh, no, it is the one I'm thinking of. Groiser X is the weird. Uh, it's like a weird bomber plane looking Gona guy robot that mostly mm-hmm. just cameos in new Mazinger stuff at this point. It's very ugly, and <laughs> I've not seen a single minute of that cartoon. Wait, is it a robot or a? It looks like a bomber jet. You said. Yeah, well, it's got a face. I think it's technically a it's robot. A plane with a face. Yeah, p- basically. Is that the definition of a robot? If you put a face on it, it becomes a robot? No, that's the definition of Moe. I thought it was like a Gurren Lagan thing. The more faces you got, the more powerful you are. That's true. That is true yeah, in Gurren Lagan. Yeah. Clinically yeah. proven. That reminds me, though, what's the, what's the name? Is it Guy King? The one that's like the proto Gurren Lagan in terms of putting faces, ah, like extra faces yes. on the robot? Guy King. Yeah. Okay. It was like kind of a Gona Guy thing. And then they tried to make it seem like it wasn't, and then it came out that it actually was, and I think he got some kind of settlement from that, like, decades later. <laughs> this is why we bring Tom on the show. See, yeah. so he's, already, he's already proven assault over here. Uh, but also one of the reasons we brought you on is because we were hanging out with you at Anime NYC uh, about two weeks ago, and uh, we wanted to do a little little recap of that convention. Uh, it's my first time going to it. I think it was David's first time as well. Mm, yeah, The first time in... As an anime NYC, but I was uh, I've been to Enyaf twice before. Enyaf, Nyaf. Is that how we're saying it? I always say <laughs> I always say Nyaf. Nyaf. Oh well, there's three different yeah. ways. So there's Nyaf, Nyaf, and Enyaf. Yeah. This is like the the weird arguments people would get into about how like Nyan Cat was pronounced. Like people would say like Nyan Cat. Uh, Nyan Cat is so bad. Yeah, that's I hate horrible. It. People Very say that. relevant thing to bring up uh, in 2018. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's actually the the oldest version of that is uh, Ryu and Ryu. Right. That's true. Ryu. Oh, Ryu. Yeah. yeah. Man, only 90s kids will get this. Yeah. <laughs> 
So anyway, David is actually referencing some of, some of the history that I think is cool about this convention, just interesting about it. There used to be, uh, there were a couple conventions in, like anime conventions in New York City, but it's kind of like, I feel like compared to some other major metropolitan areas, considering like how big New York is, like, it's kind of surprising that there hasn't really been like a super strong, continuous anime convention in New York. Right, so like years ago there was expensive. Yeah, that's probably why. It's similar, I guess, to San Francisco. There has there's not really like any anime convention in San Francisco because it's like too expensive to run one here. Yeah, there's like a there's been a number of, I think like smaller conventions too, which like pretend that they're New York. They say that they are, but they're actually like in one of the neighboring towns or whatever. Like not actually in the five boroughs or anything. Right. I mean, Anime Next used to be in the Meadowlands, which was like you know kind of close to New York, right. but not actually New York. You know, if it's close enough for the Jets and Giants, I guess it's close enough for anime fans. But uh, yeah, there used to be the Big Apple Anime Fest, which I never went to. I remember that was like when I was in like high school or something. And I was like, I really want to go to this convention, but I never made it to it. That that was actually the first convention I ever went to, but I just didn't really know what to do. I didn't really understand right, what right. it was. <laughs> so like I just kind of went to the dealer's room and went home. Yeah, that's well, that's people still do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like. That's what most people do at conventions. Right, I'm nowadays, pretty sure I, I was like. like 12. Was where was that? Was that at Javits Center? I never went to it. I don't even remember. But then there was the New York Anime Festival, which I remember being kind of a big deal because it was after like Big Apple Anime Fest kind of shut down, and people were like, "Is there ever going to be another anime convention in New York or whatever?" And then New York Anime Festival was run by Reed Exhibitions, which also ran uh, New York Comic Con, which I think Reed doesn't run San Diego Comic Con. They're like completely unrelated. And they run a couple other things too. They're a pretty big like event, you know, company. I think they do C2E2 in Chicago, I believe. And uh, the reason why that's relevant to bring up is actually because one of the people running Anime NYC, which is also in the Jacob Javits Center, the big convention center in New York, same as New York Anime Festival, one of the people running it from this company, Left Field Media, is Peter Tatara, who used to run uh, New York Anime Festival. So it's in in some sense, it's like a continuation of New York Anime Festival, because it's kind of like some of the same people, but under a different company. Also, I guess there was that period. Did you guys go to Comic-Con when New York Anime Festival got rolled into it? Yeah. Oh. Uh, I actually rather, went maybe to... one year. I went to the year before that and the year it did happen, because I went to... Mm -hmm. The first New York Anime Fest I went to was 09, when uh, Yoshiki Tomino, creator of Gundam, was there. I think that was his... Oh, I was at that one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, I, I feel like a lot of people I know now were probably right. in the same room. So that was, I think, the first year they were sharing the space at the same time. And I think it was like, uh, if you had admission to one, they let you into the other. But, oh, yeah. but the year following, that. it got rolled into New York Comic Con. And I think it became like New York Anime Fest at New York Comic Con. And what it's now been uh, kind of famously derided uh, as the, the anime ghetto. Uh, oh yeah, where it was kind of shoved I, in at a the corner. time. It was derided as the anime ghetto. Right. That was not a retroactive thing. Yeah, yeah. and it was in like a, it had its own space. It had its own what like its own dealer's room or, or like artist alley, and it was very obviously to make it so that like the comic fans didn't have to mingle with the anime nerds. Yeah, uh, listeners who aren't familiar, there's a pretty good photo essay on it at uh, Colony Drop written by uh, Dave Cabrera. So that's a. Uh, a, a, a nice little time capsule of what happened there. Yeah, and it's actually maybe that might be a little relevant, I suppose, to some of the stuff we're going to talk about later. We're talking about some of the news related to uh, 
like Netflix's uh, announcements and and some kind of you know big American media trying to you know invest more into anime projects. And it's kind of interesting looking back on that because it's like I feel like anime is is definitely growing a lot, right? In terms of how much like more mainstream kind of um, media sectors in the U.S. are paying attention to it, and like that was a time when we would, you know, it's like, oh, we're we're this like you know relatively small compared to Comic Con, little like you know little anime ghetto over here but it feels like that's like more and more a thing of the past as anime is being integrated into these like larger media ecosystems you know what i mean well, it was only a matter of time uh when like warner brothers and like sony started getting involved right yeah like now that wouldn't make any sense because now those companies are gonna they want anime to be somewhat you know mixed in with their other properties exactly. because now they stand to make money off of it <laughs> so that's like some of the some of the history here uh so Anime NYC is from some of those same people, but also it's kind of interesting. It's like sponsored by Crunchyroll, but it's not literally a Crunchyroll convention, I, I guess. Like it's not quite the same thing as like Crunchyroll Expo, but it's like a halfway Crunchyroll Expo. Yeah. Is it like <laughs> presented by Crunchyroll? Like I, I expected to like to see more Crunchyroll orange all over the place. Right. It's not a very orange convention. Uh, seven out of ten. Not orange enough. <laughs> <laughs> orange is my favorite color. Should have been more orange. I mean, Crunchyroll was definitely promoting it a lot. It's yeah, it's it's weird. It's like I guess sponsored by Crunchyroll. I I kind of, pref- I'll say I prefer that a little bit. Like I I think I might have mentioned on this show the fact that Crunchyroll Expo has this like monoculture thing going on that I'm not. It it's like it's well run and yeah. Well, I guess like I should say disclaimer for anything talking about Crunchyroll Expo is like I got paid by Crunchyroll to do work at the convention but yeah it's just uh, it, it has a different vibe kind of from from other conventions because it's run by a single company and I kind of like you know it's like a, if, if you're going to sponsor a thing like I kind of like the way Anime NYC does it where it's like the sponsor is not their brand doesn't consume the entire convention but they're, they're still there they're still a sponsor Crunchyroll gets a lot of I think you know branding benefit from having their name associated with this big new york convention right because right? like the kind of convention we like is uh and stuff not really like industry cons where they show up and they've got a product well that's something that, that they want that, to sell that's something that's pretty interesting about anime nyc because i think we basically over the space of a year saw it make the change from more one kind of con to the other uh so i attended last year uh because they had a dang Gundam Thunderbolt jazz concert, and why would you not go to that? Uh, right. But, uh, you know, I applied for uh, panels, and I knew other people who did, so I did a few panels. And in general, there was, like, a good spread of fan panels. The uh, size of the convention was uh, basically half the size of what it was this year. There's kind of this... the the They use the exhibitor's hall space basically to house the entire convention. There's kind of this segment that has these like breakaway walls uh, that can you can use to make individual rooms. And those were all the uh, panel rooms last year. And this year they just opened it up and just extended the exhibition area and had like a separate area for panels. But the key difference with panels is that there were very few fan panels comparatively to one's... Uh, either associated with a guest or run by industry. I think I I didn't give it a very close look, but I think that there was 
the stuff that doesn't meet those criteria is probably like less than 10 would fit the fan panel category. Uh, so yeah, like, uh, I knew a lot of people who got either waitlisted or rejected outright. Um, so very different vibe this year, like less of a fan con feel than more of an industry con We're kinda, feel. We kind of blur the lines though when we say fan, because some of the oh, sure. presenters are like celebrity, I don't know, cosplayers, content creators, content yeah. influencers, I don't and know. And there were definitely like, guests yeah. like that. There's kind of like a a weird blurred line there nowadays yeah where where you've got people who we might call like we might say it's like oh a fan panel from like you know one of our friends who's right. like a writer or something and it's like they're not that far off from someone who would be a like a guest right i mean even like someone like mike tool right who might run like a fan panel at one convention and a guest panel at another convention depending on whether they invite him as a guest <laughs> but there's there is still a different vibe when like anybody can do a panel right and I, I guess there were a handful of those but you know when you reduce the amount of available panels for fans significantly it's like yeah technically people can do panels but it's like that's not really you know you give them a little room you give them 10 spots and nobody comes to them and like you're kind of just starving that community out of existence right yeah i was just very annoyed that they didn't accept me and pat's panel the uh galvian Srungle power hour uh <laughs> All about the works of Koksai Egaisha uh, and uh, Egaisha, excuse me. It's very important. That one would have, I mean, you would have had so many people. I know. So many Galvian Strungle fans. People are just really into a robot that's themed after a space gorilla and another show that was canceled. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, it's a, it's you and Pat's on stage and you look out at an audience that's like a packed room, but it's just more like a you know you and pat's tiled across the entire room (laughs) they're all just more of you oh god it's like more like programmatic glitches showing up as memes in the real life Mm -hmm. like instead of t-posing it's just somehow there's (laughs) asset replication yeah 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 And you're all moving, they're all moving like in the same, you know, in, in sync. And they're all like, this panel's great. These two guys, they really get me. <laughs> oh my God. It's a horrible, vivid mental image of, of applause, but all the claps are in sync. <laughs> so just, that's, re- that's terrifying. Just really loud, like a staccato y percussive noise. <laughs> yeah. So that is an interesting thing that started to happen. You know, I, I think historically people would make that kind of criticism of like anime expo we've talked about that on this show before but it it definitely feels like those kinds of cons are proliferating where it's not just anime expo right so now it's like there's ax there's crunchyroll expo there's anime nyc like there's more and more of these kind of maybe like comic-con-esque industry-run cons that are like kind of the way i would best describe them i think i talked about crunchyroll expo in this way it's like it, where fans are the fans take a more passive role right so like fans show up and you know interact with the media that they like and consume it but they're not like they're not forming the culture of the convention the culture mm-hmm. of the convention is made for them by you know whatever companies are running it and then they kind of come in and consume it which is i think of a, a I don't see enough people talking about how fundamental a shift that is in the anime community, yeah. right? Because it really was, like, for years, for a very long time, like, 
that even even if you know there was industry influence at the end of the day like fan the the tides of fan culture is what determined what would happen at anime conventions right and what would be the you know what events would be run and things like that well isn't it also like much more financially prohibitive to even really run smaller cons anymore compared to like these bigger uh like industry type cons that just have the money for it it's kind of an investment in some Even ways. For the Javits Center. Yeah. But like I, I I now almost when I hear about like new cons that are like small and fan oriented, I almost wonder like how could they mm. how could they possibly survive? Yeah, I also wonder though whether those like I wonder which which kind of con like anime fans prefer if given the choice, mm. right? Do do most fans just want to go to like a bigger con with a bigger dealer's room with more stuff to buy? Sure, there's plenty or... of attendees who don't even go to panels, really. I'm not just talking about panels though, right? I mean, there's other ele- elements to it in terms of like, you know, cosplay gatherings yeah. or just like there's lots of other aspects of fan culture right. at conventions. And I just I wonder whether fans like, you know, even if people aren't, you know, thinking about it at the level that we are, but if they you know, just tend to gravitate toward one or the other, right? Like, mm. would would fans kind of like the vibe of, like, a, you know, I actually think about, like, Fanime versus Crunchyroll Expo because they exist in the literally the same convention center. So in many ways, I think that, like, Crunchyroll placing their convention in that convention center is, like, a, a kind of, even if they don't, I don't know if they intend it this way, but it's kind of like a just a declaration of war on Fanime. So it's saying, like, look... Only one convention is really going to be able to stick it out at this convention center. And it's like Crunchyroll saying, we think it's us, right? And that's like an interesting thing to think about is like, because Fanime has a really strong fan culture to it of like, it's it's not about the industry. It's about like hanging out with your friends and kind of like these spontaneous fan interactions. And Crunchyroll Expo is very different. It's like buttoned up. It's, it's much better run, right? It has a lot of like really good you know well curated like panels and stuff but it's all kind of run through this industry lens and i'm very curious to see like do fans prefer that more polished you know maybe i don't think it's larger than fanime but it might become larger than fanime right and then like would fans prefer that because it's bigger and more polished or would they prefer that kind of like more homegrown fanime style thing i don't know yeah it's an interesting question because like isn't the kind of common wisdom, or at least it was for a while, that the average lifespan of like a mm. uh, anime fan was like what two to three years, and they kind of move on, Something like or that. it kind of just gets right. absorbed into a greater pop culture uh, diet uh, than just being yeah. like a focused fan of something. So, like, I'd imagine it it probably something that could change very rapidly. Oh, right, that's true, because like what the preferences are would change really quickly, and then yeah, yeah if the if those big cons are dominating, then that's what people will think of as a convention right. because they've only been doing it for a couple of years. Anyway, this is like a larger conversation, <laughs> I guess, about conventions. But we did manage to go to basically this is kind of depressing, but, but I had a whole crazy <laughs> flight issue that got me in really late. So I didn't get to go to a lot of the convention. So I ended up basically just going to the trigger panels. <laughs> oh, so predictable. Uh, which were pretty pretty good they were a good time uh actually think let's see did i actually take notes no i think i had my i just had my my tweets i did posted these two twitter threads with uh, a lot of the stuff that was talked about in them one of the cool things about both panels is that they had uh a guest who i hadn't seen on stage with them before mayumi shintani the voice actor and she's like 
interesting because she's a voice actor who's like friends with the trigger like animators and i i don't think you typically see that i can't think of a lot of examples of times when there's like you know clearly a relationship between the like a friendship or whatever between kind of like production staff and not even necessarily like super high level you know and directors or whatever but like the designer of a show and like a voice actor in the show like right two, those seem like kind of separate pools. worlds yeah yeah Oh, right, like where crossover, they'll, they'll like go out of their way to include her and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. They they specifically cast her in in like a lot of their shows. So which you know she's actually a fairly recognizable voice actress also because she does like a like very nasally voice. It's like an adorable snarky duck. Mm-hmm. That's what it sounds <laughs> like. Uh, she's Haruko and Fooly Cooly. I think she's somebody in she's probably somebody in Gurren Lagann, but I can't remember who she's. Uh, and she's no known in Kill La Kill, Idori in Space Patrol Luluko. She's um, Rika's mom, whose name, by the way, is Rika Mama. That is Hell her yeah. canonical right. name in uh, Gridman. And uh, they actually referenced in the panel the Easter egg that I tweeted about, where Rika's mom's um, earring is the yellow eye that Midori has on her head in uh in Space Patrol Luluko like a reference to the fact that uh that Shintani plays both characters and they 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 like did some cheeky thing where they were like oh I wonder if maybe Rika's mom's skin was green when she was younger <laughs> huh like, <laughs> did you notice the earring she's got like they didn't say it but they were very obvious about it although it didn't like Wakabayashi kind of pick up on the fact that maybe like the people in the audience like believed them and was like, actually no, this is not the right. case at all. Oh, well, that's the thing. The trigger like trigger fans. I hate to say it. I mean, as a trigger fan, but like trigger fans are are a little dumb. Because uh, <laughs> it's like no, there's just a lot of like wanting to like seeing things that aren't there like they they want to see all this significance like i think they're just very earnest is what yeah it is. that's true like when i uh like in that panel uh they showed the um i guess it wasn't that panel i guess it was the live drawing one but regardless they had uh the uh i think evan you said it was their clip from anime expo their kind of fake mm-hmm. interview about premiere oh yeah uh where uh the is it the director or the producer was talking about how he, he gave a fake plot synopsis? Oh, that was that was Kazuki Nakashima, the writer of the show. And he uh, immediately oh, the, the movie. It's a movie. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. sorry. And ahead. he immediately uh, jokes like, and it's not, and none of that is true at all. But like, there was like a someone next to me who was like, oh, like mm. clearly interested by his plot synopsis, and then was like that. actually like surprised <laughs> when he was like, but that's not actually what it's about. <laughs> They're very credulous, yeah. I suppose. They're just excited. But yeah, it's earnest. It's it's earnest. Yeah. They're very excited about Trigger. I didn't mean dumb in necessarily <laughs> a bad way, but just in like a, like, they're kind of like maybe blinded by their love of Trigger. And there's just things like wanting to see these connections and this like meaning in their shows that I, I just think as, as someone who likes the studio a lot, like they're just not those kinds of creators most of the time. Like, they just like not, stuff. Yeah, they're playing with action figures. Like, it's not... I think people try to describe, like, a kind of... Not that Gainax ever quite was this, but, like, people 
think of Gainax as having these like really deep interconnected, you know, philosophical things, mostly I think because of like Ava. Yeah. And I think people just like ascribe that to anybody Gainax related, including Trigger. It's because they breathed the same air, uh, the same circulated <laughs> air that Hideaki Anno breathed. Right, the same circulated air, like uh, which was full of like what uh, so much garbage that they couldn't like get to various doors in their apartment. Full of L- just just full of uh, LCL vapor. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of that where you know they have uh, the character in Promare who is uh, who really does look a whole lot like Kamina from Gurren Lagann, and fans are just like, "Oh my god, what if they're connected? What if it's Kamina and he's back?" <laughs> like guys and wakabayashi made a whole joke about it where he just kept being like no he's not kamina and like (laughs) he did this at ax2 where he basically had an entire like you know set of panels and just like went through trying to prove that he's not kamina so he's like look here's imaishi's old art and here's like why he doesn't look like he's he's different from kamina it's like a different thing (laughs) oh and i guess how talking about how imaishi all of his characters look like that so like it's not that's not proof that the character is Kamina. <laughs> Look, it's insane that people think he looks like Kamina. They're very different. He has a side shave. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> and what do you say? Kamina's hair, this guy's hair goes up. Now Kamina's he, hair doesn't go he up. He has main character hair and Kamina doesn't, is basically what yeah, he said. Yeah, that's what he said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think that that does connect to that, like, the thing with uh, with Rika's mom. Because I when I tweeted it, I did, like, check before I tweeted it if anybody had posted about it. And I did find someone who tweeted about it, but they They scooped you. Well, yeah. (laughs) But it's funny because they were like, this, what does this mean? Like, there must be some kind of connection. (laughs) It's like totally that. They they were like, what? I think Rika's mom's an alien. Just like, just like the, (laughs) just all automatic, just making the like conspiracy theorists like uh, thumbtacks connected with string. Mm -hmm newspaper yeah. clippings in their mind i think one of those people you know replied in that thread when they saw my thing they were like oh i guess it's just an easter egg i was like yeah sorry guys oh, just it's probably trigger. just them having fun with the fact that they're working with this voice actor again evan trigger would never include easter eggs in their yeah no uh, they don't do that they would never reference anything every single uh piece of the mako hallelujah monologues is like foreshadowing for the show and none of them are references to like dagger of kamui look obviously uh kill a kill takes place in the rebooted universe from the end of ideon because uh <laughs> mako makes the ide symbol oh yeah that's right. true just, they it are, can't, it can't exist unless it's the same right yeah that's that's basically law it's illegal to make stuff connected but not really. It's just a, it's a tribute to Anno because uh, he created Ideon. <laughs> Are we gonna get into tributes? I think we're I think we're gonna be jumping the gun if we get into tributes and trigger and cre- respect. Oh, that's creators. true. Yeah, we gotta get to that. We should, we should, that's a good cue to maybe move on to some of the news we've got, and then we will talk about trigger tributes. Uh, so. There has been some news, uh, some very big news from a, a big Red N company. Unfortunately, there has been news. I regret to inform you that Netflix is, in fact, at it again. They knew they had to do it to them. Honestly, this was actually, this is, like, pretty smart. I could see what they were doing here. It was, like, a media rollout on this stuff. So they announced, like, two things kind of within two days of each other, anime-related, like, very obviously intended to put, like, a an anime fan spotlight on Netflix. 
So the first one, which is pretty big, they're both pretty big, is uh, they are going to stream probably, I bet they'll figure out a way to like market as an original, but they're going to stream the original Neon Genesis Evangelion TV series. And I think, did they say uh, end of Evangelion? The movies as well. And probably, what's that, Death and Rebirth, I guess? Yeah, yeah. Or do they say, they said the movies, does that, in, did they say that includes rebuild? Oh, that's a good question, actually. Because Funimation has the rebuild rights. It's probably Death and Rebirth and End of That's Ava. what I assumed. Right, right. Because those are the ones that, like, nobody had the license to. Yeah. And never got, like, a decent release, even when they got released over here. Like, the transfers on those DVDs looked awful. That is part of the reason it's a huge deal that it's going to Netflix, because there's been pent-up demand yep. for what, like at least a decade now almost a decade i think because yeah. it's uh 2009 is when adv went out of business and go. nobody else got the rights since then and i've never heard this confirmed but i mean the kind of rumor i had always heard and i, I think this is like people kind of surmising this from other information like from the um those filings the court filings right. or whatever for the adv funimation there was that attempted partnership that fell through and they went to court or whatever and there was like a bunch of uh they revealed a bunch of the licensing costs for a bunch of shows that ADV had licensed, right? And so it was possible to surmise based on that that what had happened was that anime companies in Japan had licensed a bunch of shows, including Ava, to the U.S. for really low prices. And then because they were like, oh, who's going to care about this stuff? And then they were like, oh, wait, there's a huge market and Evangelion is a smash hit. And they probably just jacked all the prices up after that. <laughs> And so it was like, yeah, you're not getting this unless you pay us a ton now. We're not going to, like, give this away to you anymore because Ava is going to make so much money, which I don't know how true that is in the U.S., but <laughs> they, they maybe think that it is going to make a ton of money. And the so, yeah, the nobody had it. The expensive licensing at this point, from what I understand, is the streaming rights. So Netflix probably paid a good amount for this. And I bet for just the streaming rights. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. Like, but it makes me wonder I, if now I would that say they probably don't have the home video rights. But maybe well, I'd like to be wrong about that. Does Netflix release anything on home video? From my understanding is they that do. all of their stuff that has been released has been released by other companies. Well, they yeah they sublicense it. Yeah, exactly. Right? But I mean, they to sublicense you have to first get the home video rights. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I just wonder if it getting on Netflix means that there's uh, an increased chance or decreased chance of there being a physical Blu-ray release of Ava. Oh, you don't even know if you're getting Blu-rays though. Are you getting Blu-rays? Was I mean that... they they would be they would be HD quality on Netflix. No, are you going to get Oh, so it's HD streaming. Yeah, of course. Netflix. Not going to be like a crappy upscale of Well, it's been on Blu-ray in Japan for up. years. Yeah, it would have to be. It would have to be probably the know. HD version. I think, I think I think that they will like majorly fuck up at least one thing like <laughs> <laughs> like mono audio or something i'm sure something will screw up yeah i mean whatever that <laughs> there's always something that something, goes wrong with any of these things up. like they might just only they might only show like the dub they won't get like the japanese uh audio no track. way they're not that dumb well there's also this contentious thing of whether netflix is redubbing it or not apparently yeah you mentioned uh, like, that yeah, Amanda Wynn Lee, uh, who is one of the previous dub casts, uh, tweeted in a since-deleted tweet that uh, she knows that they are redubbing it. Yeah, but the she fact said she can't say why she knows, right? Right. It's kind of, I guess, the maybe, fact that maybe it's... just because of something confidential, I guess. Yeah, the fact that it's been taken down, uh, you know, kind of raises an eyebrow. But They uh, got to her. 
They sent That's the right. Netflix anime police after her. She was silenced. Because you, you asked before, Tom, like whether Netflix getting it, you know, means it's more or less likely that we would get home video. I'd say slightly more likely just mm. because it, it means that someone was in talks with them about licensing it for the U.S., right? Sure. So, like, if Netflix sat down to discuss the rights to Ava, I'm sure home video came up in that conversation, mm. right? And so... That doesn't mean that they actually got them, but I, I, you know, I'm sure it was like on the table at some point, and right. so that it means it's possible that they got them and they'll sublicense it to somebody more so than it was when like nobody was talking about Ava rights, right? right? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I think one of the things that, that I found very entertaining from people talking about this online is uh, people pointing out that the discourse is coming back. Yes, and I am 100% not prepared for what 2019 Evangelion discourse on, like, Twitter is going to look like. I don't want to hear any normie takes on Evangelion. You mean, you mean you're not looking forward to people being like, what is Shinji's problem? Why doesn't he pilot the I, cool robot and fuck all the hot girls? I am not like, looking forward to the Kotaku article that's going to come out yeah, about it's Evangelion. Just a bit, dude, there's so much to this because it's like, there's so many different factions of the Ava discourse, and I think we've, We've added factions in like in the modern era. Oh yeah, yeah. Like, you're gonna unleash an untold amount of horrible writing yeah. <laughs> into the world when you show Ava to general audiences. Because yeah, there's those guys. They're always gonna be there, right? The guys who are like, oh, hey, Shinji should just get in the robot and fuck the hot girls, yeah. right? Yeah. But now you've also got kind of like the woke police who are sure. going to be on top of it. And right? there's more awareness about like mental health and stuff. Yep, yep. Like, like the, the we're thing just that, in a very different era for yeah. it. <laughs> the <laughs> thing that always killed me about the like broy Ava uh, takes is that it's like Shinji is literally a character who spends an entire day riding the train until it stops listening to a, a DAT cassette player on loop. Like mm -hmm. this kid is not well. And that right. should factor into your interpretation of the events that you see. Yeah. The bro guys are like completely irredeemable. What I what I'm especially terrified of as always is the people who like have a good point and are going to go on like long rants about it. We're going to get a lot of Oscar versus Ray. Yeah. A lot more. I'm just yeah, I think you're right about the mental health thing. Like I'm I'm gearing up for like a kind of you know, revisionist Ava backlash of like Ava is actually, which is there, there always have been cycles. Ava's of, actually right? bad because. Right. And Ava is actually like problematic. It's going to be sure. There, I'm already seeing that start to happen. And it's like, it's going to happen for sure when it lands on Netflix. And maybe those people are right, but it's just going to be the, the whiplash is going to, it's going to be something. Looking forward to that reappraisal of Evangelion. Yeah, that's my favorite Evangelion movie. Yeah, it's the they're making those after the rebuild films. <laughs> yes, it's just it's just an anime about people sitting around and talking about how Ava is bad. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> they use the word deconstruction a lot. Oh God, I can't wait for deconstruction mm. to make a big comeback. I don't know. I feel like that's deconstruction's kind of already been like shamed out of people's vocabularies. Like. <laughs> It's coming back. I'm, it's oh going to be good. It's coming back in a Normie big way. takes, yeah. God, you're, you don't even try to construct anything because it'll just be gone before you know it. <laughs> I'm not even going to be here to like defend Ava or whatever. I'm just going to let him destroy it. Good riddance. 
I don't let the let, let the normies have it, and we never want to ever speak about it again. It's, just... it's gonna be like the what the end of like Thor Ragnarok. Dave is just like you know we have to let them destroy Evangelion yeah. <laughs> in order to rebuild it. Yeah, uh, see, getting... I thought I thought Dave was of course referencing the brilliant uh, Gareth Edwards original property Godzilla, in which Ken Watanabe's <laughs> response is simply let them fight. Let them fight. Let them fight. <laughs> <laughs> I'm. I am actually looking forward to, like, having a good excuse to revisit Evangelion, and I think we should probably do it on the podcast at some point. If not, I may. I might may write about it. Don't. I'm like. I'm begging you. Like, don't make me rewatch Evangelion. <laughs> I've, I've been I'm meaning so to rewatch sick. it. I'm for so a long sick time. of Evangelion at this point. Guys, honestly. if you pledge a certain amount on the Patreon, David will have to watch <laughs> okay. Evangelion. Honestly, I will only do it if our the, the Patreon it can go up a little bit higher. Yeah, there you go, folks. You literally have to pay me to watch Evangelion. A, a little bit. I'll judge. I'll judge when a little bit happens. Maybe we'll do it as a bonus episode, David, and then yeah, we'll talk about that. Yeah, yeah we'll talk about it. What we're going to talk about now, though, is the next thing that they announced, uh, maybe like a day or two later, oh, well, while people were still reeling from the Evangelion news. One's a punch which in the is... dick, the other one's a punch in the balls. <laughs> Very accurate punches. Yeah, extremely fast and accurate punches. Uh, I'm not looking forward to seeing whoever they're going to get as uh, Cowboy Bebop to play Cowboy Bebop. Yeah, to play Mr. Bebop from Cowboy Bebop. We sort of buried the lead here. Netflix announced a live-action Cowboy Bebop TV series, uh, which is slightly strange. Not completely... Shouldn't be news to anybody, actually. I mean, the news is that Netflix is is basically licensing it, uh, though, of course, they're billing it as a Netflix original. But this is actually... uh, I didn't see a lot of people talking about this on Twitter but this is a project that was previously announced because Netflix typically just licenses things from production houses that are already, you know, making things or pitching things. So this was actually announced last year, if people remember that. There was a company called Tomorrow Studios. Yeah, because no, when people were like, this this will never come out, right? So it's a company called Tomorrow Studios that announced that they were making a live action or, you know, they were developing a live action uh, Cowboy Bebop series. This is after the live action movie that was like announced in 2009 and then basically sputtered out around 2010 that was supposed to have Keanu Reeves star in it. So they're unrelated. Uh, I think they're unrelated. It seems like the rights, you know, they, they lost the option to it or whatever. And then this other company picked it up and, uh, I guess Netflix did what they do, right? So they swooped in and they were like, hey, we want to pay you to make this and put it on Netflix. Uh, So, you know, it's worth, you know, I think some people were mentioning this fact that like Netflix, I'm I'm not really sure how much like creative control they have over these things, right? Obviously they're paying for it. So I'm sure they have producers attached to who, you know, review various things and have feedback and stuff. But like this isn't produced in-house at Netflix. So... The real question is going to be like, what does this studio, Tomorrow Studios, do with it? Uh, also, notably, this I barely saw reported, but this same studio is developing a One Piece live action TV series. So I wonder if Netflix is going to pick that up too. And do you think that they'll have the rap? They better have the rap. I think it should be a One Piece like rap show. 
It should be nothing but the One Piece rap. characters rap. A musical. A musical, yeah. but it's a rap. It should be a musical. A rap musical on pirate ships. So, you know, people would eat it up. I think there's not much, you know, we don't really know, like, anything in terms of casting or anything for, for Bebop. So, as David said, dreading finding out who's going to play uh, Mr. Cowboy Bebop. Well, casting aside, the little teaser that they posted didn't even have audio. What will the music be like? Oh, mm. original. Obviously not going to be Yoko Kano. Right. It would be very cool, actually. I mean, I guess it would be probably just repeating itself if you got Kano to work on it. But it would yeah. be really interesting to see Kano, like, score a, you know, a U.S.-produced live-action show, right? That's kind of interesting, like, yeah. in terms and of mixing those. And it's not like Yoko Kano is the only person who could write jazz. Uh, no, I'm, didn't she invent jazz? I thought... That's, that's, I, that's I never true, heard actually. jazz until I watched Cowboy Bebop. So I just right, but there have been invented it. but there yeah. have been people since her that have demonstrated that you, it is possible <laughs> for other people to write jazz. Uh huh. Yeah. No. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't have to be her. Obviously, she's like, great, but I think people put a little too much emphasis on that. Like, you can't possibly do it without her making the music. And it's like, yeah, she's really good, and there aren't very many people who are as good as her. But other people could conceivably write music for a Cowboy Bebop show. Right. I mean, as long as it's not people doing, like, dubstep takes on real folk. Oh, God. Like no! <laughs> what is it? Steve Aoki? Steve Aoki. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Featuring uh, Yoko Kano. Just get, like, uh, just get, like, Thundercat and, like, Flying Lotus to do it. Although their stuff is a bit more chill, working, I guess. Well, they're working on Yasuke. So. Oh, right. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we talked about that in a previous episode. At least one anime is going to have good music. Yeah. The, yeah. the the jazz in Bebop is a little closer to like big band anyway. So mm. that that that's the only thing that's like you don't see that a lot in media, that specific type of jazz. Mm. Not in like the type of thing that Bebop is anyway. I know a lot of people are like, oh, no, Cowboy Bebop, the sacred cow. You can't make a show out of this. It's like I have somewhat mixed feelings where it's like it is already so american in terms of like being influenced by american films and stuff right like so it kind of is like a double-edged sword where it's both unnecessary to turn it into like a hollywood thing because it's already kind of in that world but also it makes it like easier for me to see how it can translate into that right like also as opposed like, to like one piece is really weird to me right like the fact that this company is also trying to do that because it's like that seems very difficult to translate or like dragon ball is really difficult to translate but like bebop is already like halfway there so it's like it doesn't seem that hard to to turn it into that also like uh shinichiro watanabe has he made a short a cowboy bebop live action short and it was bad <laughs> so Wait, i never saw that what it's a, okay. So the opening scene of Cowboy Bebop the movie, uh, you know, like the robbery. There's yeah. like the guy who's talking at the counter. Oh, I'm not sure I remember that, but okay. Uh, looking it up. But regardless of uh, whether I actually find this info or not, because it's impossible to search for Cowboy Bebop live action anymore and get the <laughs> results I'm looking for. Um, it does not have any of the main characters. It does have Cowboy Bebop in the name. But, like, the guy who's, like, monologuing to the cashier is, like, a real person that, like, Watanabe knows, I think, and, like, likes to include in his stuff. And so he's also an incidental character in this. Uh, but uh, it's very bad. It looks like junk. 
and I wish I could remember what it was called uh, when I decided to bring this up. <laughs> we'll uh, throw it in the show notes if you find it later. <laughs> um, but I'm I'm tentatively excited for this actually because I think that like I think adaptations are interesting even when they're bad. Like it's I I like to see how another artist reinterprets someone's work right even if they like don't get it i find it interesting to sort of just see them struggle with it and like try to you know reframe this story in their own voice it is kind of a thankless job too yeah i don't know that it really should exist but since it does exist i'm gonna watch it and i'm gonna find it kind of interesting even if it's a failure (laughs) so that's the netflix news but we're not done yet with somehow like Hollywood crossing over into anime news because Crunchyroll feels like maybe pressured by the Netflix announcements like a day or two after that Mm -hmm. was like, okay, we have an announcement too. Uh, And they announced that they are co-producing a Blade Runner anime series called Blade Runner Black Lotus with Adult Swim. So this is actually part of the fact that like Crunchyroll is now owned by AT&T and I think got reorganized under Warner Media. So now they're like in the same family as Cartoon Network and Adult Swim. So I think Warner is trying to like be like, hey, you should all do some stuff together now that we own all of you. I assume this will run on Adult Swim on, on TV. I don't know if they specifically said that. And I know before the show, Tom, you were saying like, oh, well, this mm. might be cool. It's from the same uh, staff as that... Uh, the Blackout 2022, right? Which was like that kind of prequel short that they did to coincide with, uh, what was it, 2049? I always forget the year, but that, uh, that new Blade yeah. Runner movie. And that was pretty cool. That was directed by Shinichiro Watanabe, the Cowboy Bebop director. Had some like very cool action animation, kind of felt very Bebop-esque. This is not produced by the same folks. <laughs> but... So I the only thing I know about it is that Watanabe is involved in some respect. He's right? the creative producer, which sounds to me like not doing very much. And it is produced at Sola Digital Arts and will be directed by Shinji Aramaki and Kenji Kamiyama. Oh. Yeah. So these are uh, like Shinji Aramaki especially, but also Kenji Kamiyama are they like are pretty much just CG directors now. Kenji Kamiyama still does a little bit of 2D work, but uh, Shinji Aramaki directed, like, uh, Appleseed is, I think, might be the first one that he did in CG, and he's been, like, all CG since. And Kamiyama, uh, before he turned into, like, a CG director, he was known for stuff like uh, Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex, Eden of the East, uh, Moribito, uh he had a pretty good track record as a director and then he went to CG and I feel like I haven't heard anything good about any of his CG movies. I don't think I've seen them. I saw the napping princess, which was like, okay. Uh, but that's like hybrid 2d, 3d. Uh, and yeah, he did like what 009 re cyborg did a couple like 009 things. Um, and anyway, the two of them are now working together on the Ultraman CG anime, which Netflix also licensed and announced alongside Evangelion in that same batch of announcements. Uh, so anyway, they're not um, not very good, is the thing. <laughs> they don't make like the good CG anime, Aramaki mm. and Kamiyama. They kind of make the, the bad CG anime. There are a couple of good CG studios, but they're not one of them. Arguably, they didn't make the good 2D anime either, so... 
Well, Kamiyama did, and Aramaki was a pretty pretty good mechanical. You designer. liked Eden of the East? I hated it. Well, Eden of the East is not Kamiyama's best work, but Ghost in the Shell standalone complex and Mori. Uh, I've only watched a bit of Moribito, but it was it was pretty good what I saw, and I know people really liked that show. There's a reason people liked him before Eden of the East. <laughs> I thought he did a really good job making the uh, paper animation Pat Labor shorts that screened before Pat Labor wasted 13. That was like his directorial debut, this thing called Mini Pato. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, they're actually like really fun and like kind of irreverent and like ultra nerdy also. Like, like they're just kind of goofy if you don't know anything, right. know anything about Pat Labor. But if you do know about Pat Labor, like, wow. This is incredibly like nitty. Like they're just talking about stuff, like mm-hmm. whether the revolver cannon is technically a cannon. Sounds boring, not though. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, I guess that in the first Ghost in the Shell standalone complex. That's basically all that I've really seen of his before. People were like, "Yeah, you don't really need to bother with anything else he's done." <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, uh, he's kind of like an Oshi disciple. Right. Yes, that's kind of his thing. I think that's why the mini pato thing to begin with—that it was kind of well, yeah. Oshi adjacent. Yeah, exactly. And then like Ghost in the Shell also, right? right? It was kind of related to that. Uh, yeah. So anyway, I'm not looking forward to a CG Blade Runner show from these guys. I don't think a CG show would be bad on its face, but it's coming from two guys who have typically not made the best looking CG, and I think I'm trying to think. Like if Aramaki, maybe I haven't seen a ton of Aramaki stuff actually, but Aramaki stuff I think tends to look pretty good. Like that Harlock movie looks incredible. Oh, was Uh, that? I forgot that was him. That's Aramaki. Yeah, yeah. Actually, the Har yeah the Harlock movie looks great. I forgot about that. (laughs) His his movies just like lack any kind of like soul. Right, right. Anyway, not looking forward to that though. Uh, And I still think even I mean Harlock looks really good, but. Even like, you know, I remember when Appleseed came out and it's like there's things about that that look cool, but he he just generally his CG has like a very clunky look to it. The stuff yeah. we've seen from Ultraman doesn't look great. Like it all just looks like kind of clunky video gamey stuff from him. So I guess just to wrap this up before we uh, before we move on to our, our little Gridman segment in here. I do think it's very interesting to see all these things announced kind of at the same time. And it, it really shows like we are in an era where Hollywood and sort of big media companies, I guess Netflix is kind of part of that kind of Hollywood ecosystem. Now they are paying a lot of attention to anime. It kind of reminds me of the early two thousands when you had stuff like the animatrix and it was like anime was supposed to be the next big thing. And it kind of wasn't, it was like, Oh, all right, we're going to have to wait another 15 years before anime like reaches the level people thought it was going to be. It's like everyone's favorite shonen fighting idiom. You're 10 years too early to exactly. challenge me. <laughs> but yeah, it feels like another era of that uh, where, you know, companies seem to be scrambling to like, you know, get these anime titles and do either adaptations of them or like this inverse thing where you do an anime version of it in the case of Blade Runner do you remember when they were kind of doing this sort of com- like based on a comic book gold rush in the like 2000s where it the the feeling seemed to be that it didn't matter what it was so long as it was based on a comic and it being based oh, on a comic yeah. was what was marketable like like a lot of like really 
kind of okay-ish movies. I always re- well, I always remember uh, the movie Pathfinder, which I think was about <laughs> a Native American brave fighting Vikings, and Wait, they that would sounds bl- very cool. And it does sound very cool. Yeah. I don't remember it being very good, uh, but it came out around like the same time as like Three Hundred did. So it's very mm. clearly like uh, oh right, Three Hundred is totally part of that. Yeah, because Three Hundred was just Period. like Spartans versus basically ninjas. Uh, so. It's like, hey, we'll just have this other weird mismatch. Anyway, they marketed it as being based on a comic. From what I understand, they had put out a comic of it just so that they could say that. Like, oh, it, that's totally a thing. Yeah, that was yeah. like um, a lot of. Uh, I remember like what Mark Miller got criticized for that a lot. Where like a lot of the comics he made were just pitches for movies. Yes, precisely. So I just like, wonder. Uh, Kick I think, got criticized for that. Yeah. So I wonder uh, how long before we see companies make like. I don't know, like OVAs or something mm-hmm. as an attempt to springboard it to a live action film. Yeah, that's like an interesting point. I think that that very well might happen depending on how much money is in it for these Japanese companies, right? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely much like probably less cost intensive to just make a one-off comic book and be like, hey, base it on this. Right. But again, the I guess the thing they based on doesn't have to be good. I don't know. Well, it's also, <laughs> I mean, when you look at something like, uh, you just look at, Crunchyroll and Netflix, both of which are involved in like co-producing anime, right? And they, and Netflix especially, but I feel like Crunchyroll is inching its way toward like a place where it might, you know, because it's connected with like Warner and stuff, right? Like where where it might be in the interest of kind of kickstarting these live action projects. It's not unthinkable for, you know, maybe the Japanese side isn't trying to do it, but for Crunchyroll to show up and be like, we want to co-produce anime that we that Warner can go and turn into a live-action movie, right? And so kind of making that, like, this long game for their co-productions. And the snake eats its own tail. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. I think that's very plausible, and especially for Netflix, that makes a ton of sense. We have a question about this that we'll get to also at the end, but let's, uh, let's move on to talk a little bit about... Uh, about well an anime that we're actually watching instead of just talking about news but also some news related to it i think we are all watching Gridman, right david you're watching it yeah i'm like one episode behind i think i'm also an episode behind actually i didn't manage to watch uh this like weekend's getting, episode i was getting caught up today then i think we're all on the same page oh all right nice so i think we're we're planning on doing actually a full episode on it when it's uh when it is over but i guess just quickly i, I want to know like i'm especially curious what you think of it david it's a weird show. I appreciate it just for being strange, but maybe I'm not like too convinced on stuff like it's like the characters have like this weird thing that I'm not like getting so far <laughs> I think, going I think on. I agree. Yeah. Like, so the last episode that I saw, it was like it was so strange because it honestly sounded like all of the voice actors for every character which is like incredibly tired and bored <laughs> and they oh, were just man. kind of making like these points like oh well gridman uh can't really be too big otherwise you know it powers down the whole computer i kind of love i kind of love underacting though especially in anime because everything in anime is overacted it, it makes sense in like this like stupid like teen indie film kind of way but also, when it like it comes time to like deal with the kaiju, then like everybody's super amped up and it's like all emotions all the time. So, in case uh, some of the listeners have not seen this show yet or heard about it, it this is let me count these out: S S S S Gridman, 
that's for Gridman. Yeah, four four S's, Gridman. Uh, and it's a trigger animated series uh, directed by Inferno Cop director Akira Memiya, uh, based on the Gridman. Uh, was it ne- when was it 1995 Tokusatsu series? Yeah, it was an early 90s tokusatsu show that was adapted here by Deke Entertainment as Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad with Cyber spelled with an S. And those are the four S's in the SSSS Gridman title. There's a bunch of weird little nods to that production in there, too. Although apparently uh, no one at Trigger has actually seen Seen that version. (laughs) And Amamiya previously had done, as part of the Animator Expo shorts, a tribute to uh, the original Gridman. Uh, because this new one is got like new designs and stuff and kind of a new look, but this one was very faithful to uh, the look of the original and also maybe most importantly the look of the toys. Like some of the mm. robots in it literally have like a screw on their back. Uh, oh wow! So, so like I I feel like Amamiya probably has a lot of nostalgia for Gridman in particular because like in that to me it feels like oh he's just playing with his toys. Yeah, yeah. And also like there's kind of a weird like framing aspect to that original short that was based on the aborted second or the aborted sequel to gridman uh gridman sigma which like gridman sigma like shows up at the end of that and it's like oh, oh he got, got he, he got a chance to make it happen in some small way so i i just looping back on what david said about like the the characters being kind of weird uh i definitely agree there's something kind of off about it and it's like you know so i've had friends describe it i think accurately as it feels like two shows mashed together where one of them is this like kind of atmosphere somewhat atmospheric like mystery thing where it's like something weird is going on at school and these kids are trying to figure out what's you know what's up and who's to blame and there's but there's also like kaiju attacking and then it's like you know main character transforms into Gridman, and he turns into a giant superhero and fights off these monsters and like feels a little bit like two different shows yeah, mashed together it plays, it plays all of that pretty much straight it's not like you're getting some ava curveballs where it's right. like oh the uh oh are the kaiju people not yet not yet not yet well they, cl- they claim not to be right even the ones that have humanoid form, which apparently is also a thing in Ultraman. I'm not, like, super mm. up on my Ultraman lore. I've seen very little of it, but apparently that's a thing that happens in Ultraman as well. Kaiju who have human forms. And it's written by an Ultraman writer, like yeah. someone from Tsuburaya Productions. So it's got plenty of stuff like that in it. But I think there is definitely going to be a twist in Gridman, yeah. but it's yeah. in the sense that, like, it is a mystery and we're going to find out what the mystery is. Well, there's already been somewhat of a twist, right? In one of the that I won't mention on here. We'll talk about it when we right. do a full it's, show. It's, but it's fairly well telegraphed from even the earliest episodes, and they kind of give you more clues as it goes. Like you said, mm-hmm. it is a mystery. Yeah, I definitely got that same sense from David, though. Where it's like there's a, especially in the most recent one that we all watched. There's uh, I, I'll try not to spoil it, but there's some scenes where a character in school is like. I'm going to do something evil. And then all the characters are like, oh, shucks, how do we convince them to not do something evil? It's like, <laughs> yeah. it's like this weird reaction to it. I love it. I love that bit too. Cause like, you know, to keep on, to keep on doing like the weird stuff where it's like stuff like that happens. And then like, uh, the classmates are all like, oh, that's cute. Mm-hmm. I have, I have my own theories about why certain characters act certain ways. Yeah. And it was, it was yeah. made pretty oh, close. Actually, yeah. It was made episode. pretty close to textual in that episode that yep, we're discussing. Yeah. What I really liked about that episode, though, it kind of revealed a little bit more as to, like, what's the extent of how wrong things are. And 
It was yeah. uh, there's a bit of a doozy revealed in there. It see it seems like they're like setting up hopefully a an interesting explanation for that weird atmosphere that David and I are picking up on in there. Yeah. Uh, and I I, think, I would like yeah. it if that is like you know actually yeah explained by the show and not just like a weird tonal choice I, from the director. But I'm gonna be hopeful. Yeah. I'm never really hopeful, but whether or not it actually lives up to my expectations, it's like an explanation for like why everybody just kind of behaves a little bit strangely yeah. without, uh, without giving too much away. I think so. One of the things with the original Gridman Tokusatsu show is the thing is that Gridman is not like Ultraman in that he fights in the middle of a city. He fights in the digital world and he's trying to prevent monsters from breaking out into the real world. Oh, Digimon. that's so, oh right. But that ties in very clearly with what is being set up in right. the show. So, so I think there's even more, I think even from like the first episode kind of, uh, kind of buries the lead, the lead a little bit on what it seems like the mystery is going to be. But I think if you're going in with even the barest bit of knowledge about the premise of the original show, I feel like there's already some clues for you there. Mm-hmm. yeah 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 interesting all right so we, we will get into that more in a later episode i don't want to go into like a full review here because the show is still airing so we'll kind of loop back once it's over but uh what is uh worth talking about kind of newsworthy here is there was like a kind of big blow up on uh, on kind of on twitter over this and and you kind of maybe alluded to this earlier tom when you were saying that like you know they're like playing with their toys and it's yeah. clear that it's like a bunch of homages and stuff uh throughout the show they've been doing homages to i think a lot of things that i wouldn't recognize uh but you probably would tom but also specifically amemia is a very big fan of an animator masami obari who and i think a lot of the staff are fans of him and obari is like a very famous mecha animator and designer um actually should have pulled up the things that he worked on but i mean i I know it's like fight ixer one was like one of the earliest ones where he did mechanical designs and animation um there's like probably too many to name what is dan cougar him uh, uh dan cougar was a bunch of people but the stuff yeah. that only stuff that people remembers about dan cougar is obari right okay yeah it's a very inconsistent looking show and his stuff looks the coolest mm-hmm. and he's kind of known for this very there's like a lot of exaggerated poses and camera angles and things uh yeah Right, so like a lot of foreshortening where, where yep. things are sort of like really close to the camera. Yeah, if a, if a person is familiar with Obari in any way, it's like basically 100% the chances that it's the Obari sword pose where the characters kind of pulls the sword out and they're sort of tiny in the corner and the sword is like right up in the right. camera's <laughs> face. And yeah, just a dramatic, like exaggerated proportions and camera angles. And like that's been in everything. And, and like lighting too, right? Yes. He's got a the sort sheen. of... Uh, sort of Yoshinori Kaneda-esque approach to lighting where there's a lot of very frenetically animated like highlights and like kind of little sparkles and things. Definitely. And the other thing though, in addition to the sword pose that people know him for is the Obari punch, right? Which is like yeah. A, oh, yeah. the character winding back and then usually they do like a double wind up for the punch, right? Yeah, so if you, a like, little extra bit frame, of anticipation. Yeah, they anticipate it once then they anticipate again and like pull the punch back and then punch like usually directly into the camera. Again, yep. that kind of like foreshortening thing. And so it's kind of hard to watch like any mecha and not see some amount of obari influence right because he's just such a major force in mecha and you even see that stuff in non-mecha like trigger 
there's multiple examples of like Obari punches in non mecha trigger stuff. It shows up in like Little Witch Academia of all things. And the sword pose has been used absolutely everywhere, regardless yeah. of whether a character is a robot or using an actual sword. Actually, yeah, Kill La Kill, I think one of the early episodes has a Obari sword pose with uh, the scissor blade. It shows up in like really like like comparatively like mundane animated something trigger would do anyway uh th- there's definitely like images that you could find relatively easily online of like just a huge grid of obari sword po- sword right right screenshots <laughs> yeah. uh, i'm sure the vast majority of which were not done by him in any capacity exactly right and that that is kind of where the this so-called controversy uh came in because obari this is where things get kind of interesting obari uh joined a Chinese social network. What's it called? Weibo, which sounds like the way my friend used to mispronounce the word weibo. It's what I always think of. And I'm probably mispronouncing it myself, but it's a Chinese social network, I guess like a Twitter. I'm not very familiar with it. And I guess, so this is where things get kind of like, I think people got kind of confused by this because I guess his wife is Chinese. And so he knows some Chinese and was able to set up this account and post in Chinese. Uh, and in Chinese, which again makes things difficult because people were trying to translate, you know, whatever, like people can translate <laughs> Chinese, but typically the anime community, there's like, it's, I don't know, it's easier to find people who are translating Japanese, right? So there was a lot of people being like, wait a sec, we got to find someone to translate this in from Chinese so that we know what's being said. Uh, and he basically complained on here about uh about trigger doing not you know i guess not just like a couple references to his work but but doing kind of like a full sequence right like a full transformation sequence or combining sequence from uh is it mike guy it looks like yeah it looks that way it's like basically uh shot for shot an entire cut of animation it's the one that i'm seeing and the one that's been shared around is uh the finishing move that it performs on the kaiju yeah, where it like cuts it in half vertically. Yeah, and the entire thing from uh, where it holds up the sword to this kind of like uh, cone of energy that forms around it, uh, and like cuts this monster in half with like this basically wall of light that comes up, splitting it in half. Like it's shot for shot. Uh, and I mean, Trigger has definitely done plenty of like they're known for pastiche. Right, uh, and I guess the argument here is like, when does pastiche cross over into plagiarism? Right, and well, because like a, to to like add on to that, like Obari said he wasn't even consulted on any of that, right? I think he said on Twitter that like it would have been fine if they would have like reached out. Yeah, and I and so I read uh, Sakuga blog did some coverage of it, and their interpretation, which sounds reasonable to me, but I mean I'm not I don't can't read the Chinese on it is uh, he wasn't saying like, this is outrageous. Like, you know, I need to be paid for this or whatever. Uh, And he was more kind of just griping like, ah, this is a little too much. Like, I wish you guys had asked me like was kind of like maybe miffed about it, but not being like this studio stole from me. So he didn't use the word plagiarism. I don't think so. Cause the way I've seen it framed online and you know, things tend to get, uh, mm-hmm. things tend to snowball yeah especially when people don't necessarily have easy access to the primary sources which is uh obari accuses studio trigger of plagiarism uh right 
which is people like reiterating what the situation is using more like extreme language, I guess. Yeah, well, there was a version that translated it as plagiarism, but at least the right. Sakuga blog coverage of it does say that it, you know, frames it as him saying like the team took it too far and it was heartless of them to copy his storyboards and key animation to that degree. But at the same time, uh, he made clear it wasn't a money issue. He wanted to be just wanted to be notified. Uh, so, I mean, I think he, he has somewhat of like a leg to stand on there in that, like, yeah. that's, that's a very, there's a lot being referenced there, right? It's not just right. like a pose or something. Um, but also, I don't know. I kind of think it's, it's to a degree where it's so obviously a reference to it. <laughs> like, right. You know, it's like usually I think plagiarism or any, you know, not that he's exactly claiming plagiarism, but like typically that is done with something where like someone thinks they wouldn't get caught doing it. Yeah, when I can you... see that. I think because it's Obari and he's such like a known figure. Right. Uh, like it's not like they took, it's not like they hired on someone who didn't work out and then like used their storyboards and didn't credit them or something. Right, or even, I mean, I'm just thinking about, like, various things like this in movies where movies will recreate, like, the Odessa step sequence from Battleship right. Potemkin or something, right? Mm. And, like, the, even if you did, like, a shot-for-shot shot recreation of it, like, it's, you're really not doing, like, plagiarism because nobody is going to look at that and be like, wow, so brilliant, I can't believe you invented no, a scene with a, a baby carriage falling down the stairs. It's a question of ownership and intent, and there's no intent to own that scene. Mm-hmm. Gridman, like Gridman, from start to start to like whatever point we're on now, it's just been like a sequence of different callbacks to things that they like, and full of inex- inexplicable uh, Transformers references and like every character's costume yeah. design. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, that's just like that's just cute stuff, but I do think that Obari's kind of right in saying like if you are going to do something to an like an extent of this uh, maybe a bit of bit of notification yeah, just I because yeah. like he might he might just say like i don't like it don't put it in right Check i mean with me. that's the thing right if you're if you're not trying to do it in a way where like you're going to sneakily take the credit for it then there's no reason why you shouldn't just let the creator know right because like if you're just being up front and you're like, look, it's just a reference, right? It's not I'm not taking credit. It's his. Like you should just ask him. Like how hard could it just be to like just like send like a Weibo private <laughs> message? <laughs> be like, hey, uh, I like your stuff. I kinda wanna do uh, a reference to this show that you worked on. How do you like? Well, I think and it's like, it's made like... even easier by the fact that I'm I think like, you know, there's trigger staff who know him personally, so it's not like they'd be reaching out out of nowhere. Like that's a it's a, for for, that's for like all the, the like, that... there's a lot of people in the anime industry. I think it's a pretty small industry, all things considered. And like, people know each other, right? Because I kind I kind of wonder, like, you know, is there like other stuff that's already been in the show that's just kind of been thrown in without any sort of like prior notification thing with other artists? I wonder if in the future, like, Trigger will have something that just, even just like a special thanks credit, like with acknowledgement. Mm. To the yeah, works no, of Obari or something. Because, right? like, the worst case scenario is like something what happened between like, was it Harlan Ellison and the Terminator production, where he's like, "This is a lot like an episode I wrote for Outer Limits," and James Cameron hmm. was like, "Nah," and then they went into litigation, and now 
the credits for Terminator say with acknowledgement to the works of Harlan Ellison uh, huh. in every si- subsequent release. And I'm sure he had a settlement out of that. I'm pretty sure it was Harlan Ellison. Uh, but, like, is it enough to just kind of preempt it with that? I, I do think checking in with them is probably the most uh, prudent way to do yeah, it. Yeah, it seems like they, they should have done that. And maybe the, it's, I don't know. It seems like a very honest mistake, though. Like, they're just like, oh, gosh, we love Elbari. Let's do a bunch no. of Elbari references. And they just, like, didn't think to, ref- to like, go ask him. Because maybe, like, also probably most other people in the industry probably didn't have that kind of reaction. And they probably were not bothered by not being consulted. But Obari, because he's a different person and everybody's different, right? Like, for whatever reason, maybe because of his personality, he was like, I would have rather been consulted. And, like, I don't know if. I don't know how well they know him and whether they could have known that he would have wanted to be consulted. Right. But I really hope that they do right by him in the future. Now that he has indicated <laughs> that he's not happy about it. <laughs> yeah. That'd be annoying. If like, they just keep on doing shows with more, Obari they they just they do in. even yeah, more just, Obari stuff than they did before. They're like, yeah, we just we did an entire Mike Guy episode. Yeah, and <laughs> it's just it's like, right, and it's not a question of like aping his style or whatever. It's like literally using the choreography and like shots yeah. from this sequence of animation. They literally just take the script from a guy, uh, uh, <laughs> Mike Guy episode. <laughs> they just not even change the names. Yeah, just all the characters just look different. They're, They're just, just the cosplaying char- as yeah. the characters from Mike Guy. <laughs> The cast of Kiesniver, uh do a Mike Gein episode. <laughs> Wait, that would be like a better version of Kiesniver. <laughs> and it just had it just has Mike Gein in it. <laughs> it's in Mike Gein AU, where actually it's Kiesniver. It's like a better version of Kiesniver and a worse version of Mike Gein. <laughs> I think we kind of covered that, so we got to answer some questions before we get out of here. Uh, we have a few questions from our fine patrons over at Patreon. If you would like Lovely to be people. on the priority question list, uh, you can give $2 or more to the Patreon. You can also give more than that. I'll talk about that later. But uh, $2 will get you on this list. Uh, we have a question from Zane, a.k.a. Anazel. Uh, do you think Cowboy Bebop has a chance since they're bringing on the original creator, or do you think it's just lip service and they paid him to use his name? So, well, I want to address original creator as well in that question. Sure. Because who is the original creator of Cowboy Obviously, it's Hajime Yatate. Yeah. (laughs) 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 Yeah, are they bringing Hajime Yatate on? (laughs) They better. If it doesn't say Hajime Yatate in the credits of the Netflix live action show, then it's a bad show. Yeah, I agree. I've been really down on all of that Cowboy Bebop nonsense live action, but if they do bring uh that completely real to life person <laughs> yes. into the into the fold and I will they need to make Hajime Atate a named character in the show. Yeah. Oh that would rule. <laughs> no, I want them to write for live action Cowboy Bebop or at least be like some somewhere in there. Somewhere somewhere involved in the creative process of that. It would have been so funny if they announced uh like it, and then it'll be, it'll be supervised by original creator Hajime Atate, and they like list the credits. And they're like Hajime Atate is an incredibly prolific creator. He created the original Gundam. Uh, he actually created everything that Sunrise has ever yeah. made. Yeah, I guess you're right though about like who's the original creator. Obviously, Watanabe is 
pretty strongly associated with it. And I do think a lot of it is like kind of his brainchild, but it's, there are other people who I think were pretty essential to it, right? Like Keiko Nobumoto, especially as the writer, I think is like essential to what that story is. I just, I don't think, I don't think Cowboy Bebop is one of those like things that came out from a singular force. That was, Mm -hmm. yeah, that was a lot of teamwork. Yeah. I think of it as mostly like a trio of Watanabe, Nobumoto and uh, Kano. So I think I know a good way for us to gauge uh, what level of involvement he'll have once it has come out, because in the time since I couldn't remember the name of that short that I mentioned, <laughs> I have found it, and it is called Cowboy Bebop Don't Bother None, and it features a cameo by uh, Japanese actor Renji Ishibashi, who also plays the same character who is based on him. He's named Renji uh, in the Cowboy Bebop film, so if Renji Ishibashi plays Renji in the live action Cowboy <laughs> series, then you know that Watanabe actually had some pull. Right, right. Yeah, and I, I'll just say I don't think that he is going to have that much influence over it. I, in in my experience, those kinds of roles are largely ceremonial, and like they, you know, they might be able to to you know give a little feedback here and there, but like it's don't expect something like it being directed by him. They might they might have the chance to like tell a person face to face that it sucks. And they can't do anything about it. That doesn't mean it won't be good, but just, I wouldn't expect Watanabe to be like the reason why it's good or anything. If it's good, it's going to be because they hire good right. domestic writers and stuff to make it. Yeah. Uh, another one from Zane. Uh, do you think the Blade Runner anime has a chance or will it end up being crappy CG? I guess we didn't really talk about the other elements of it. We did talk about the CG, but I really like Blade Runner, and I yeah. I think this thing has no chance whatsoever. Good. Yeah, I mean, I I still just kind of think I don't want anything other than the first Blade Runner movie to exist. Even though twenty forty nine was like a good movie, I just am like, you know, this doesn't need to be a franchise. This really should not be anything more than a single movie. <laughs> I definitely agree that I don't need Blade Runner to be a franchise but when I thought that it was the people who made the blackout short I was much more interested uh right and it's the fact that it's basically guaranteed to be CG because uh Aramaki hasn't worked in 2D animation in decades and like one of the things he said at anime next was like I don't even really know like what I, what to, what I would even do at this point to do <laughs> 2D animation I'd like prefer not to do it at this point right right all I know is that like the only uh, the only concession would be uh, this is the highest chance there's ever been of a Blade Runner thing having a transforming motorcycle in it. Oh, that's true. <laughs> Although that said, almost even certain. Aramaki, even Aramaki has lightened up on the transforming motorcycles quite a bit. I would that would be interesting. I kind of want that to happen now. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah. It's also just so much anime has been influenced by Blade Runner and it's just like looping back to it and being like, now we're just going to make an anime version of the original. It's like, yeah, but Bubblegum Crisis already exists. Yeah. I think if you know Aramaki, Aramaki did Bubblegum Crisis. Like he designed mechs for Bubblegum Crisis. So it's like, we're going to bring back the guy who made the thing that's like extremely obviously based on Blade Runner and have him make a thing based on Blade Runner. It's like, we've already got anime Blade Runner and it's basically the seeds of Blade Runner split across like, you know, eight different shows. I think if you had announced this, like with this, with this staff in like 2002, 
Right, right. I would have been, yep, I would yep. have been like amazing. The director uh-huh. of Ghost in the Shell standalone complex and the guy who did that CG <laughs> Appleseed movie. Right, right, right. But like in the time since then, I'm like, ah, eh, maybe not. Yeah. Back on the Ava stuff, we have a question from Fun for Chew from the Patreon, and it is the question: Oscar versus Ray. Go. Who's gonna throw the first stone here? Uh, Oscar is not a soulless clone. That's fair. Like Oscar's better. It's true. They're all, but everybody's bad. They're all bad, but Asuka's better. Yeah. The ideal of Rey is like what? That she transcends the fact that she was literally made as a disposable person, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. But when you talk about Asuka versus Rey, I can't help but think of myself in like Shinji's perspective because I feel like that's the implicit thing. Right. And that's, a, I mean, like spoilers, I guess, but like that's a soulless clone of his mom. That's fucking weird. And yeah, I mean, uh, you also just got to think about where they like both of them spawned types of anime characters right so like the whole Mm -hmm. anime industry is just a reflection of this question that that fun for chew has asked us about oscar versus ray right like the all post evangelion anime is trying to answer the question of oscar or ray which one would you bang and if you just look at the ray clones are always 10 times worse that's what i was gonna say if you look at the which ones that they spawned and like who has a worse track record? It's Ray, right? Because Ray is the one. Ray spawned all the uh, baby wives, right? And Asuka, like, they're also bad, right? Because Asuka spawned all the, like, Sundere, uh, just, you know, hot-headed girl who hates you but actually loves you. Asuka invented, like, light novel protagonists, the light novel heroine. She invented it. Right. But that's, like, a it's marginally better than the baby wife. So I have to say that Asuka's better. David, I guess I gotta take Ray's side because like <sighs> two are bullying her. And I know, I know, like I know, Ray is like the cliche like creepy otaku choice. Yeah, but Ray, I mean, you're not really doing right by her by calling her a soulless clone because she does grow a soul for a few moments at the end of the show, and that's like that's pretty important. Yeah, I said I, that. That is the interesting thing about Ray is her transcending that. Uh, the fact that she is created as that thing i like that i like that narrative that she transcends her limits and then asuka is just the reality of all of us just slowly deteriorating over time <laughs> asuka's asuka clones in anime also stand out a lot less than uh ray clones like ray clones are always super obvious that's <laughs> true like like uh i'll always remember uh ruri hoshino from martin's successor in Adesco. Yep, yep. the fact that they the the movie sequel was like recalibrated to just basically center around her like really is very telling i think mm-hmm. i've always preferred asuka though just because she has like like putting a setting aside metaphysics of the characters i've always just found asuka to be like she just has more personality yeah yeah exactly i honestly don't remember whatever personality that ray develops over the course of the show but asuka is like a far more memorable character <laughs> but the real answer as always uh, to the question of Oscar versus Ray, the the thinking man's answer is Misato. So moving on. Oh, I thought you were gonna say uh, uh, Mari. No, get out of here! <laughs> Fuck you. No, the real answer no, is Mari. always it's always Misato. I mean, you could argue that it's like Ritsuko or whatever, but no, it's Misato. I think Galaxy Brain is Maya. 
or, or uh, <laughs> class president. Maya is is pretty galaxy brain. That's good. I I don't know that I've ever known her name. Yeah, I forgot her name. Maya's great. Maya's one of the bridge people, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I've definitely yeah. never known her name. No, because she's in love with the. Oh, I don't know if I can say. That's a spoiler. It's a good bit. It's a good bit for End of Ava. I'm not gonna say. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> End of Ava has some good Maya content. <laughs> And last question from Fun for Chew, also on the Patreon. Is Netflix taking over the world, and is that really a bad thing? Terrible thing. I'll say it's not just Netflix taking over the world. I think tying into what we talked about before, it's a... It's big media companies owning all the media and deciding when and where they put their shit up online. That's the bad thing. And they all require, like, a $9.99 subscription. And also kind so of, yeah, it's like, bad. I think that like we implied before, there's probably, they're going to probably start influencing the way the productions are made or, you know, what gets greenlit in the first place. Yeah. So it already influenced the way that we consume, which is like, it's so weird. Netflix taking over the world is a bad thing because it means that uh, Avatar The Last Airbender is now anime. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> they retroactively made it anime. <laughs> I will say, I've mentioned this before, and I can't stress this enough, but people like to frame this as Netflix and Amazon versus the super genuine, totally real fan anime companies, and that is not what's going on here. The anime companies that you're thinking of, with a few exceptions, with the exception of, I'd say, what, High Dive and, like, Discotech? And, like, you know, High Dive being, like, Sentai or whatever. With the exception of those two... You, what you're talking about is not like fun little your friends Crunchyroll and Funimation versus big bad Netflix and Amazon. You're talking about AT and T and Sony versus Netflix and Amazon. <laughs> like AT and T and Sony own anime companies that they thankfully are smart enough to like let them run as anime companies and not for the time being just integrate them into this like massive thing, right? But like. Th- Whatever, uh, I mean, there are genuine, authentic fans and people who really care about the stuff working at those companies. But at the end of the day, like the, the, they are companies that are not there to be your friend, right? Like they hire people who are good at being your friend to sell anime. And they're much better at it than Netflix and Amazon are. So I would prefer them over Netflix and Amazon. But they are still just like a, this face that you interact with that is a part of at&t and sony right nobody is your friend they're not going to give you a ride to the train station they're not going to invite <laughs> you over for brunch on sunday yeah i don't know guys i think that there's a pretty good chance i can get funimation to help me move <laughs> you know they told me they, they dropped by with a u-haul <laughs> that's a big step in a friendship yeah and i mean i again i don't want to say that like it's the same thing because like these Anime-centric companies are, they understand fans better. They do a better job of, like, responding to what fans want. So anyway, uh, it's, uh, I guess there's going to be, it's going to be easy to watch some anime on Netflix in the future and uh, probably still hard to watch it on Amazon uh, because they can't seem to get their shit together in terms of discoverability. But maybe on, I think on the bright side, if I'm trying to be a little bit less pessimistic... There are probably some interesting productions that wouldn't have otherwise been made that will exist because of this. Like, we'll probably also get more stupid stuff that shouldn't be made, but... Like Blade Runner. Yeah, but there are things that 
the anime industry would not have the incentives to produce that because of like big money getting involved from the US. Like we'll we'll get some interesting stuff. We talked about Yasuke, right? Which is kind of interesting. It's gonna suck for a lot of people when like they put put up the money and then the returns aren't good enough, and then we're back to uh, just whatever anime was when Hollywood was paying attention. Right. <laughs> I just know that uh, without Netflix, Neo Yokio wouldn't have been made. And uh... oh. well, shout outs <laughs> to them. God damn it! <laughs> that, there's a new uh, Christmas special coming up. I still haven't seen a second of Neo Yokio. It's bad, but David oh, likes it. Great. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately. Okay, so that's all we've got time for. We ha- had some uh, questions from non-patron uh, folks, but I, I think we're going to have to get to those a little later in a future episode. So that is it for us. Uh, before we head out, got to just promote some of our stuff here. Uh, Tom, where can people find you? Uh, well, I'm pretty active on Twitter at Tom Asnable. Uh, I've also been writing a bunch of stuff on my Medium account. Uh, same thing there at Tom Asnable. Wrote a bunch of articles about Gundam Narrative's uh, main mobile suits and uh, their kind of design lineage and what we could maybe uh, speculate on based on that uh, for the movie Gundam Narrative that's coming out. I've been wrong about a whole bunch of stuff, but I still think <laughs> it's pretty interesting. <laughs> Uh, so those are my two main things I'm working on now, and uh, you can read some of my older stuff on uh, zimmerit.moe, Z-I-M-M-E-R-I-T. And you don't need to spell moe for the fine folks at home. Exactly. And I guess I guess we uh, said it at the beginning, but uh, also the Cockpit Podcast is where you can hear more of me and also uh, the founder uh, of it, Pat. We're probably going to be doing an episode, recording an episode later today about uh, anime NYC and Gundam narrative stuff. Shout out to Pats. Yeah, we're going to have both of you on to talk about Gridman later. We're going to have a nice little Gatai combination sequence. David and I are writing for Otaku USA magazine. I just actually wrote a review of Space Patrol Luluko because it's getting like a re-release from, uh, from Funimation. And uh, also writing up a manga from... Or I haven't read it yet, but I'm going to be reviewing a manga from the Bacano and Durarara author, which sounds pretty interesting. Uh, David, you're doing mostly manga reviews for them, yeah? Yep. I don't remember what I reviewed. It's all good. <laughs> so you're just going to you're gonna show up with the... It's just going to show up in the magazine. I sometimes blog on animeburgertime.tumblr.com and... Uh, David is streaming video games every Saturday night still at twitch.tv slash bean. What are you playing? Uh, Overwatch. Still playing that Overwatch. Overwatch. We discussed that last episode. We're trying to finish up on uh, Super Mario RPG, but mostly me getting on to Overwatch. Uh, you can check out show notes, blog posts, and a link to the official Gamers Discord to talk to other Gamers fans on antigamers.com. We also have a Patreon, as we mentioned before. You can support us on patreon.com slash anygamers to get onto that priority question list and access bonus articles and podcasts. Uh, We usually do a companion article for every podcast as well as uh, kind of cut audio from like pre-show and things like that. You can email us uh, questions, responses, anything you want to talk about related to the podcast, uh, topic suggestions at podcast at anygamers.com. And you can talk to us on Twitter. Uh, I'm at sign Vampfo, V-A-M-P-T-V-O. David is at sign QX20XX. And Annie Gamers is at sign Annie Gamers, one word. 
We're on Mastodon. I'm vampfo at mastodon.social. David is 20xx at caro.ccsakura.jp. And uh, episodes are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Music. You can always use a few extra iTunes reviews to help more people find the show. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Tom, for coming on the show. My pleasure. We'll see you soon. And we'll see you, the listeners, again in about two weeks. Is this going into the Patreon? (laughs) Yeah, this is the content that people pay for. You get that uh, Uh, Evan dying ASMR.